0: Good evening, everyone. What a great crowd. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, My name is David Fisher. I'm the moderator for Airtime. So welcome to season six of Airtime presented by AIR, the arts incubator of Richardson in partnership with the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson, Texas. Airtime is a signature artist interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in Richardson and the Dallas-Fort Worth area where artists share about their art and why their creativity makes a difference. Airtime is funded in part through the generosity of Eric Weiss with Well's Star Advisors and through a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. For a little bit of business and housekeeping, I will now turn it over to our fearless leader, Miss Kitty Goddard.
1: Thank you. Um, And I'll make this quick because we have a lot to do tonight, and there's already been so much to see out front. I hope you all had a grand time looking at all those fabulous cars. And thanks to all of the owners and the dealers who brought cars, we will acknowledge them later. Um, I have two quick uh, pieces of business. The first one is most of you have in front of you an arts survey and a pencil. We request that you please fill that out. It will take you maybe all of one minute. But it's part of an arts economic impact survey being done in partnership with the City of Richardson and the Americans for the Arts. The answers you provide will have uh, really a vital impact on how the arts uh, affect a community as well as where the gaps are. So we encourage you to do that and when you leave, whether it's after the interview or the movie, just place it on this back counter. Uh, We would appreciate that. The second piece of business is a really exciting partnership between AIR and Richardson Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. Yes, I practiced that. And Richardson Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram is right here in Richardson. And they said, we really like what you're doing. And we love this whole idea of showcasing these classic and new cars. And here's our deal for you. Anybody attending this airtime or friends thereof who wish to have a brand new car can go to Richardson Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram and they will give you $1,000 off your purchase of a new car if you mention this airtime and take one of our business cards that's on the back. So on that table, there's some representative uh, business cards from different airtime board members as well as business cards from the, from the two sales reps who are here. So if you're interested or have a friend who needs a new car, this is a great deal. Plus, for every new car purchased based on this airtime, That dealership will donate $100 to AIR. I encourage you to buy some cars. Back to David. Have fun.
0: Thanks, Kitty. Today is March 16th, 2016, and today's creative guest is Mr. Michael Shelby. Thank you. Michael is the oldest son and middle child to automotive designer, racer, and entrepreneur Carol Shelby and his first wife, Jean Fields Shelby. Growing up while Carol was still in the midst of his racing career, Michael attended the 1958 European... Circuit and the Le Mans in 1959 with his father. During his high school years, Michael spent time working at Shelby American from 1962 to 1965. And time spent with Carol often meant spending time with other celebrities of the day. Michael recalls spending time with Twiggy, Chuck Yeager, and Jay Leno, amongst others. Today, Michael credits his dad for giving him an appreciation for farming, classic cars, and racing. And we'll touch on all of those as we chat now. Now, normally we do our interviews uh, with a time for questions at the end, but based on our conversation today, you actually had, we're actually going to start with questions actually from Mr. Shelby to you.
2: Well, I thought that I'd ask everybody here to start things out. uh, Who had a Mustang or a muscle car in the 60s? Just raise your hand. And who has not said, gee, I wish I'd kept that car? <laughs> Almost everybody wishes they had kept that car. We didn't have a place to put those cars. But the, the early Mustangs uh, actually do tie in to the, the theme of art here. Because if you, if you look at the early Mustangs, uh, it is a piece of art. It's, it's short in the back. It had a long nose. They gave it a lot of thought about what people would want to just see with their eyes. And the way Kitty set that up out there, you guys can look there and see a work of art in, in both the Cobra, I think, and, but I know from my early days with the Mustang that they paid a great deal of attention to the eye appeal, the, the appeal. And then they had this little $2,000 car in those days. Uh, it became a symbol. It's gone on for years, uh, much longer than anybody thought it would. But uh, I think you can see the the art in the in the profile of that uh, that Mustang out there. And so I just I wanted to to know what percentage you know of people uh, remembered the the muscle cars, remembered the Mustangs. Remembered the cars of their youth when they grew up, and that's that's the nostalgia of part of what we're doing out here. And I plan to tell you some of what it was like to grow up with that, from a young a little, young boy, uh, you know, right on up through uh, 2012. You can say that's when my father died, and uh, that was just the symbol of the American muscle car. So. I wanted to start with that question. Uh, I'm sure, sure, Larry has some things he'd like to say too.
0: So it, this is actually not on the uh, question list, but it, you speak of that that eye appeal. Are there, is there anyone making cars today that with that same attention to detail, that same attention to design?
2: I would say the uh, the McLaren, the McLaren from, and there was a surprising number of people involved from New Zealand. Uh, in, in these high performance cars. Uh, I, I picked that above the Ferrari. I think McLaren's had a tremendous uh, effect on, on the automotive industry for all these years.
0: Any of the mainstream manufacturers? Hmm. Or is it all just junk now?
2: No, it's not all junk now. But it was, uh, there was a time from through the 50s up through about 1968. And that's where I divide the, uh, the car industry. up. Through the 50s and, and through the early 60s, it was a fun time without a lot of dollars involved. Uh, when I was a young man, uh, all the race car people would come over to our garage on Thursday nights and they would drink beer and work on their cars, work on their own cars, and then tape the numbers on them. And the really serious people would disconnect the drive shaft and tow their car to the races. Uh, the rest of them would just drive their car there and tape up the headlights and go. And uh, I think everybody that was involved back then misses that now because it's it's a multi-million dollar, multi-teamed. You know, we had a chalkboard that if you made it all the way around the track, you could you could write one small message on the chalkboard. Uh, and that was about all the communication you had with the driver. The rest of the decisions he made while he was out there. And uh, and one thing, and I wanted to tell Larry, when when I was just a seven-year-old uh, ADD child with a, a timer in my hands, and a uh, you know we were running lap times. Those were the times, uh, and those were the number of laps at this seven. And my brother, next to me at six, were keeping the, the laps. And those were the official winners. I mean, I might have been talking to my brother when the car went by, <laughs> and, and somebody said, I know I ran the full number of laps. But uh, that's, that's the kind of fun that everybody was having back then. And it went on up through the 50s the same way. But then, then it started getting serious. Uh, but it was still uh, a very fun thing. Nobody, drivers did not work out. Uh, they went out and probably did a little drinking the night before. And they played a lot of practical jokes. Uh, one in particular that comes to mind to me was a driver named Shell over in Europe. And he had a little Mini Cooper. And uh, my dad woke me up about 2 o'clock and he said, you've got to come out and see this. And we were at the hotel and Harry Shells Cooper was up in the second floor dining room. And they did not have elevators or anything. I mean, they lifted it up over the banister and into the second floor dining room and then would not bring it down for him for days. And uh, the hotel wasn't very happy, but, uh, but, you know, that was the type of thing that these people were doing. And they were having fun racing and, and uh, having fun with one another. And uh, over the years, I told you, I think that you could divide into two parts, starting in the late sixties uh the the teams became expensive, and it became very important if you were winning. And uh it's just gotten more so and more so over the years, where now, you know, everybody is connected to everybody by computer, by microphone, even the owner wants to know what the car's doing, what the driver's doing. Uh, the pit crew has to know every second. They can make adjustments by computers. We had our chalkboard, you know. And if the driver felt a little bit, you know, arrogant when he went by, he didn't even look at the chalkboard. So, but we had a, had a lot of fun. And, and early on people will say, you know, did I think that anything was special about my life? I knew it was different, but I didn't think special. Uh, I was six or seven years old and I was running lap times. Uh, I did notice that when I was about 10 years old that Life Magazine came by and they wanted to know all our names and take our pictures and Sports Illustrated uh, named my father the driver of, of the year in 56. And he was actually never the fastest driver. He at times was the winningest driver uh, but it was because he drove smooth and he was not hard on the cars. Uh, the thing I remember when I went over to Europe was sterling Moss and bless his heart I'm not trying to say anything bad about sterling but he would at the first the race he would always be in front of everybody and but he was hard on that car I mean he was asking a lot and he was halfway through the race the poor car couldn't take it. And uh, so that was kind of his moniker. And, and my dad was just smooth and went around and was usually in the top three drivers. And his car always finished. I won't say always, but almost always finished. So that was some of the things that I remember about Europe and also about the, the early days, the early 50s. Those were the fun years. In the early '60s were the fun year for the cobra, for the Cobra, and for the uh, the Mustang.
0: Now I remember learning, or rather, not learning how to drive, but my first time behind the wheel was sitting on my grandfather's lap, uh, driving home one evening. Uh, in it was an early '60s Impala. How did you learn how to drive, or what was your first time behind the wheel?
2: Oh, uh, it was an Aston Martin. <laughs> And uh, and I drove it into a bunch of barbed wire. <laughs> and and you know we always had some kind of special car that one of the manufacturers would provide. Uh, we also had a, uh, a, a Porsche back when they were a little boxy little car. And uh, but they were fun to drive. And and then I went down, kind of downhill from there. I went into the ordinary cars as time went on. And probably uh, oh, just moved into the ordinary family cars that we all have. And uh, uh, one thing I'd mention, and in, in I said something about muscle cars, uh, another thing I'd like to see hands, who in this room had has today the car they wanted when they were in high school? Because that's a very common denominator. Uh, we all have memories of the car that we wanted, and and then it takes us about 40 or 50 years until,
0: <laughs> until we can
2: put that to you know into uh, that plan into action. But uh, a lot of us will feel that way. I know I do. And uh, but I I actually never got up to a Cobra. The Mustang you see out there is is the top of the line for me.
0: Now I have a question for all of you as well. Um, In doing some research uh, for this uh, interview, I found a couple of several articles about people who name their cars. (laughs) So I wanna know how many of you have a name for your car? And you, sir, do you
2: have names for your cars? I don't have any names for any of the cars. Uh, On the farms, I have names for the chickens. (laughs) And, and I got a name for, for my old, old burro that's the donkey that's on the farm. And he's been around since the 80s. I don't know how long a donkey will live. Uh, but I know they live past 35 because he still, you know, gets fed his apples every day and he walks a little slower every day. But I never did name the cars. Never did name the cars.
0: So, uh, so, this, uh, so other than this Aston Martin, what was the first car that was actually yours? Your name was on the title.
2: Well, to change the question a little, I do remember the earliest car I remember being in that, was, that impressed me uh, was about second grade when I, I actually went to school in a Gullwing, a Mercedes Gullwing. wing. And uh, they look a little bit clunky today, but they sure didn't back then. When that the door flew up, you know, and everybody looked at that, I I knew that car was real special. <laughs> so uh, the that that's the earliest special car I remember. Uh, get back to the the question. The one.
0: first car you owned that was yours, yours oh. truly. You know,
2: the first car was my junior year in high school, and and uh, my dad got a '64 and a half Mustang, mm. and he, and I shared it with my brother. He wrecked it. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we had a we had a problem there. I didn't have a car because he ran it into a tree. Uh, a, a short story, and I don't want to bore you too much, but. She uh the car came back with one wheel on it <laughs> and and was dropped in the driveway and And then my brother went back out celebrating, and uh, so my mother said, "Go out to the car and see if anybody was hurt, you know, if there was any kind of evidence." And I went out. there was no blood anywhere, but I said, "I think there's an apparition in there." And she said, what do you mean? And I said, in the back seat on the Naugahyde, I said, there's a, a, a skull. oh looks like a skull. Maybe somebody did die in the car. Well, it turned out to be my brother's date. He was backing up at about 35 or 40 miles an hour. And his date turned around, and she was screaming when her face hit that black Naugahyde. And so her eyes and her mouth made a perfect skull, and that was all I could, you know, figure out. There was one wheel dangling in the air and this this apparition in the car, and we didn't have cell phones back there, so we, we had no way of knowing any, any way of knowing what happened until he got in later that night, and he wasn't really in condition to tell us. But uh, that was that was one of my early car stories, and that was our first car.
0: So uh, we you talked a little bit about how the the uh, uh, the the phenomenon of racing has changed, and there was a transition somewhere in the '60s where it became less of a community thing and more of a business thing. And we we were talking earlier about how the same thing has happened with sports and America and all of that. But I'm curious. Uh, while race cars have always been really special things, I mean, race cars today cost millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, have they always been that expensive, or is, is this even today they're so technologically advanced that they're that expensive? Well, it, it never would
2: have occurred to me in the early days that cars would be over a million dollars. Some of them, There's some that are two million now. But in 1962, when the first Cobras came over from England... They were hand-formed, transported to New York. We put them on a trailer, brought them over, blueprinted an engine. I cannot tell you how much work went into repainting them. And we put them out the door for $6,000. And we were thrilled. I mean, here you had a car that'd go 160 miles an hour. And, and we thought $6,000 was just, boy, are we getting rich here. Oh, uh, We weren't. But we did want to see the cars out on the road, so over the there was a a lull where cars were not expensive for a number of years. But I'd say starting in the eighties, people started saying, you know, we somebody out there will pay a lot of money for the right car, and McLaren was one of those people. Uh, He built a phenomenally, you know, technical car. Bugatti now has a car out for two million dollars. Uh, just anybody here can call up and get one. But uh, that's been a big jump from six thousand dollars up to two million dollars over the years. And I never would have dreamed that in the early '60s. I just I would have said, you know, someday they'll have hundred thousand dollar cars. But we've run way past that mark, and and uh, that's what. Larry was suggesting was that uh, you know everything's razor edge now. Football players, uh, tennis players, you take almost any sport. Uh, I was looking up some statistics the other day, and it was Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. They only had one player that was 210 pounds. And I mean, I'm talking offensive linemen. There was tackles that weighed 190 pounds. On national championship teams, there were linemen at USC when I went there. that weighed 185 pounds. Now they're all 300 pounds. Uh, and if you, you know, if you don't play at that level, you don't play. Not even at 1A. So uh, cars have done the same thing. They're all computerized now. Not only the the computers that affect ignition and everything else. But there's, in the race cars, they, those com- same computers make adjustments the whole time for the surface they're on. Uh, these are things we never would have dreamed of before. But, uh, but I'm drifting away from really the art of the car. So. <laughs> the, the beauty of a car is still there. If you see a McLaren, I mean, you, you can't help but let it take your breath away and then you go all the way back to the early car, the early Mustang, and it wasn't an accident that they made that long nose on that thing, and when it, you know, when it got up and moved down the road, it caught your eye, and, and that was, in a sense, you know, the art that, that is involved with, with cars then and still is today.
0: Now, the audience here is uh, I would say probably seventy percent men, sixty percent men. I'm interested to know, I mean, and obviously men love their cars, but how do you think the difference between how men love cars and women love cars? How is that different? and and then and then how do couples love cars?
2: I don't pretend to, to know exactly what it is that women do love cars. When we were in high school, if you had the right car, uh, you know, you'd like to think that they, they really liked you, but they were, you know, they were looking at that car. Uh, as much as we'd like to think it was ourselves, it probably wasn't most of the time.
0: So, so you, uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, this, a story of a Mustang and a Corvette.
2: Mm, let me think.
0: Something about the Mustang came out and beat the Corvette and was even better yeah. than the Corvette.
2: Yeah, I do remember now. Uh, the, the General Motors came out with the Corvette in 54, and they intended for that to be the American sports car for, I mean, the premier American sports car. Maybe they weren't going to take on Ferrari, but they had the they wanted to have the very best American sports car there was. Uh, the Cobra in 62 pretty much took that away in short order. But the more interesting point of that whole story in the early 60s was when Lee Icoca decided that he wanted the Mustang to develop a reputation for being a, a fast little car. Well, it, it got more than a reputation for that. He brought it out to California. And started working. It, it did not look like it had the right distribution. It looked like it had too much weight in front, not enough in the back. And how are you ever going to make this into a race car? But uh, we moved some things around, put in some sway bars, put in any, you know a stiffener in the front end. And before it was over, uh, you all may not be familiar with the, the production classes, but the little Mustang was in B production. Corvettes and Ferraris were in A production. And uh, one year, the the Mustang actually had more victories, overall victories, over the A production cars. And I was telling Larry that I think the phenomenal thing about that was the little car wasn't built to race. Uh, it was just the little engine that could. And... Uh, had a smaller engine. It had less horsepower. It was not put together by engineers to race. Uh, the key to it was weight, and and that's probably where my dad, uh, you know, really came out ahead. He recognized that he wasn't just going to add horsepower. He was going to cut weight wherever he could. And he kept cutting weight and cutting weight and cutting weight, and he outhandled him in the corners. He outaccelerated. He could his brakes held up better. Uh, so the little car that could was beating the Corvette that it shouldn't have even been able to stay on the same track with. And uh, I kind of take pride in that one because I was working on the assembly lines and we were putting that car together, me and my brother. And, uh,
0: Hopefully you were more than seven at this time. At this
2: time, we were in th- from high school uh, up through the first couple of years in college. Uh, it wasn't glamorous work, uh, but it was because we were never given the really good jobs. But, and that was working on the engines. They wanted to make sure that they did run. And so, so we were cleaning up behind. We were assembling the 350 GTs. And there was a, a big, deep ditch that the cars went over and we would, would uh, just go over everything on that car before we sold it. And then I think we sold those for $3,900. We were, we were really good to the American public. You know. <laughs> I don't know if, if everybody realized that they could get their Cobras for $6,000 and, and have people go over their Mustang I mean, with a fine-tooth comb, and then just walk in and buy it for thirty-nine hundred dollars. Sounds a little outrageous today, but that's what
0: we did. So, you uh, in your bio, and then earlier you mentioned this donkey and these chickens. So, tell us about this fondness for farming, and do you currently farm? What's uh, what is your what is your farm life experience? Well,
2: my my dad always liked. Uh, he said that the Lawrence family was his maternal line. And we just always had chickens. And his, you know, his grandmother raised him on them. And right on up through 2012, I would go over to Pittsburgh, East Texas. And he was born in Leesburg. And we would well, the first thing I'd do when I'd get over there was he'd go out and we'd get in the golf cart and go feed all the birds because if it laid an egg it was going to be on that farm it, there were turkeys and geese and ducks and chickens and and uh, so i I think I inherited that part of of just the love for the birds and uh, all of our family seemed like most of our family on on my father's side were from East Texas and I just went from one farm to another farm to another farm so that's what I've done I've I've got several farms scattered over Texas,
0: and they're all full of birds. <laughs> <laughs> so, I my fondness uh, for cars has always been cars from the 1940s, old Packards, and there's such a magnificence and an elegance and a boatiness to them. So, uh, but looking looking at the history of the American car is sort of like looking at the history of America. I mean, you can sort of look at different decades. So I'm going to name a decade, and then I want you, just in a few words or a sentence, to sum up what the cars of that decade were all about.
2: Okay. So
0: we'll start with the 1950s.
2: In the 50s, I would say an ocean liner. When you get behind them, they feel like a a big boat moving down the road. And the 1960s? The 60s, they were beginning to be a little sportier beginning to be. You had a little, a Cutlass or a Mustang, or you might have a GTO, that wouldn't be small, and but they were getting sporty. And the 70s? 70s, they lost their way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the 80s?
2: The 80s begin to try to come back. It, it takes a while when you're lost and out in the hinterlands. <laughs> so the 80s they began to look for the way back.
0: Did they find it in the 90s? Yes. And what 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 was it about the 90s that was?
2: I think the 90s. Uh, I don't want to go back and say it was the uh, uh, Mustang too, but but the Mustang made a resurgence. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people began to appreciate the older Ferraris for what they were worth. Uh, People began to, uh, or I began to notice that the price appreciated on the old cars and that you began looking for the traditional look. You might want an old GTO, uh, which was going back to the 60s, but the 90s, there became an appreciation for, for these older cars, both for their design and their scarcity. But, uh, but there was an appreciation for a well-made, powerful, old car. It just became a little harder to feed them.
0: <laughs> and the 2000s?
2: I think now it's technology. Uh, in came the little computer box, and uh, in came the injectors, the carburetor went by the wayside. The carburetor, I still kind of like the old days when when a father could take his seven-year-old son out and have a carburetor kit, and in an hour and a half, you knew how to rebuild a carburetor. He could leave and tell you to do that. And uh, you can't do that with injectors now. No more carburetors. So technology is now you know, full-blown taking over these things. And I did get to watch that take place from 2000 uh, up to current times today. Uh, they really squeeze horsepower out of, of a computerized engine now. That I didn't think that was going to come back, but it has. They can take a small V8, com- some computer boxes, and they can squeeze not only horsepower, they squeeze torque out of it. How many know that if I'm talking about torque, everybody's familiar with horsepower, but uh, but the old cars had horsepower, but but torque was a difficult item to find, and these new ones can really really turn out some some power, some low end power, and put it down on the road. So that's that's what I think of of the last decade technology. And, and
0: where do you think we'll be going in the next one or two decades?
2: that's hard to say um, I think metallurgy carbon fiber weight uh, it's still going to be technology but technology of a different sort and I'm a little out of my element on that one um, I people that know me know that I collect old engines and old engines are like 1890 to 1920. And five thousand pounds of cast iron gives you twenty horsepower,
0: <laughs>
2: and and that's you know that's a far cry from modern technology, but I enjoy seeing how slow I can run them, and uh, and you know whether I can find these old things that had to survive scrap drives from two world wars, and uh, so in that sense, my father and I were on different ends of the spectrum. He, even at 89, he wanted to know what was new. If you wanted to, to run hydraulics to open and close your poppet valves, if he thought you know, they could get less uh, mass on a piston or a different metallurgy, titanium and something, uh, he was all for it. He was all over that, even in his late 80s. And meanwhile, I had these pistons with long skirts and old clunky engines, and I was saying, look at me, I can get down to 30 RPM. (laughs) You know, I can run all day long, and it won't heat up. And uh, so we had to find some common ground between those two, but it was fun, and we've enjoyed that.
0: Well, thank you. We always end with a uh, a game we play called Top Ten Questions, and these are quick answers for top for ten questions that may or may not have anything to do with the subject matter of this evening's discussion.
2: Larry has not told me about this. So, <laughs> so, if if I fail, the course they're
0: very they're easy. Forgive questions. me. Number one, your favorite flavor of ice cream.
2: Butter pecan.
0: Number two, the one car you have never owned but would have liked to have owned? A Cobra. A
2: Cobra, a two seat Cobra.
0: Number three, your favorite city in the world?
2: It'd be Dallas. And now it's the old Dallas, guys. Mm. Dallas has grown too big. But in my head, I still have the old Dallas. <laughs>
0: Number four, the one movie that everyone should see at least once in their lives. Oh, I think Bullet. <laughs> well, all right. The most memorable celebrity you've ever met. Hmm. Mm. Gosh. Either Jay
2: Leno, which we mentioned earlier, or, or uh, Baron Hilton. Uh, yeah, Baron Hilton or, or Jay Leno. Those two.
0: Number 6, your favorite family vacation.
2: Summertime fishing trips in Alaska. Oh.
0: Number 7, the fastest you've ever driven a car. 160
2: 165. You can't look at the speedometer when you get up there. <laughs> Even on a freeway. It was I will tell you one short thing though. One time I took my son out and and we were in one of the 4000 series uh, Cobras, and I came out of second gear. I told him I had to, to you know watch things kind of close because it was on a freeway and there was traffic. Uh, but I came out of second gear at 140 miles an hour and, and backed it off at 160 miles an hour in third gear.
0: <laughs> now,
2: I couldn't have gone much higher because of aerodynamics, but that was a car. That was a car.
0: Number eight, your favorite pet ever. Hmm,
2: My first dog, Achu, named for a sneeze.
0: (laughs) Number nine, the best place to take someone who is visiting Dallas for the first time. Hmm.
2: Well, the the best places are gone now. Ola Pedrito was a neat Hmm. place years ago and then they tore it down. They never should have torn it down. But I'm gonna stay with a place that's gone, Ola Pedrito would have been.
0: And number 10, the best auto race to watch nowadays?
2: I went one time to Bristol, NASCAR to Bristol, and it's a small track. They accelerate, they brake, and they they have to drive. It's not 181.3 miles an hour in drafting they actually drive the race. If it wasn't that, it would be uh, a European road race. But in the U.S., I think Bristol.
0: Before we turn it back to Kitty, I wanna open it up to questions from the house. Over here.
2: Well, my dad died in May of, of 2012. And it was about he was in the hospital three or four months, and one of his main objectives, if he could get out, he had four experimental cars that had over a thousand horsepower, and which he claimed uh, would pass the emissions test. <laughs> that, that was a little questionable, but they had been on the dyno, and he could squeeze a thousand horsepower out of that thing, and. Uh, so, six, you know, you get a six speed. And, and uh, personally, I like four speeds. I like to hear an engine go up through the, the power, you know, range. But you put a six speed in a thousand horsepower, you got a car.
0: Way in the back in the yellow, and I'll repeat your for the recording. I'm going to repeat your question afterwards. How did you come up with the name Mustang? Uh,
2: that was, well, Lee I. Coca. Uh, was in charge for Ford. They had a uh, an experimental prototype car, and they came up with Mustang for that car. It did not look like, it was a little two-seater, didn't look like the, the Mustang that that was finally hit the road as a production car, but somebody had come up with that as a prototype name. And it was a cute little car. It was here, the first time I saw the little Mustang uh, was was here at Fair Park, you know, a couple of years before the regular Mustang.
0: Carl, in the middle. <laughs> what freeway were you driving 160 miles on? That would be
2: 405 out oh. in, in Los Angeles.
0: Mm-hmm. You can't drive that fast nowadays on the 405. <laughs> uh, in the back over here. Why, what was it about the Mustang that drew Mr. Shelby to uh, work on that car instead of some other car? Well, it was
2: a little circuit circuitous. Uh He, he went through, the, the Cobra came before the Mustang. The Cobra uh, profile was an AC Bristol, a British car. Uh, they had just lost their contract on a six cylinder little clunker engine that they'd had in it for years. And Ford never would have been in the running with their old 292. They had a thick wall casting, heavy clunker engine. So two things met at the same time. Ford came up with a thin wall casting. The first engine was a 221 cubic inch. The next one was a 260. And the 260 was the one he chose to put in the, the uh, AC Bristol the British car. Now they made a few changes in the in the uh, grille, and they put some creases in the fenders, and they. But the Bristol, if you saw Bristol in a Cobra, they have a, a very similar look. And then they went from the 260 to the 289. Uh, the fact that he had as much success as he did with that sports car is what caught Icoca's attention, and he wanted. He decided he wanted my dad to build what they called the a California Mustang.
0: Over here, there was one. <laughs> a story about yeah. dad going to GM.
2: Well, he probably wouldn't like that story out there because he... Uh, He would have gone to GM. He would have gone for a 327 or 283. Uh, Either one of those engines would have fit the bill for what he was looking for. Uh, They did not want the competition for the Corvette. So uh, what he always liked to tell was the story that, that when they turned him down, he went over to Ford. Their engine was even lighter. And he did not have any money at this point in time. He had quit racing. And he was trying to sell iCoca on my idea that if you'll just give me a couple of engines, uh, that I'll I'll get a car together for you. And of course then he would go over to England and he'd say, if you'll just give me a couple of chassis, you know, I'll I'll set up a marketing scheme where you can sell more chassis. You won't have to go out of business. So uh he always said to ICOCA told somebody, just give the man two engines before he bites somebody.
0: <laughs> and, uh,
2: and, and Dad had had a, a 260 put in a, the, the AC Bristol. And he first just polished the aluminum and then took it to Motor Trend. And then he took it back to, to Moon. There was a, a hot rod outfit called Moon Brothers and he he found this strip paint that you could paint a car with and then you could blow it off with, with high pressure air so he painted the same car yellow and he took it to to hot rod and then he took it back and he painted it red and then he blew that off and he had it silver again and he was telling them that he had you know several cars that this was this was actually the real thing going you know he could he could sell cars but that was uh, that was a paint my brother and I got to work with. It was an interesting paint because you could just take high pressure air, blow it right off the car and repaint it. And that one car got a lot of my. He still his foundation still has that original car, the car of many colors.
0: <laughs> All right, I think we've got time for one more over here. Huh, some of, chili cook-off. Yeah,
2: some of that would probably be, uh, we, yeah, it would be inappropriate in front of an audience. But it it was uh, it started with a man named Tom Tierney, who was a PR man for Ford, and he said they were all sitting around. They did a lot of drinking in those days, and they it, Tierney said he could take anything and make a success out of it. So they first decided to take this little bitty ghost town that was on uh, Terlingua, Texas, and only had four or five people in it. It had a a postmistress. It had one very long tooth and and had a general store that served several hundred square miles. And uh, they started a Terlingua racing team. Now... Tyranny almost lost the bet with the, with the racing team. They couldn't really get that to catch on. But then they decided to have a chili cook-off down there at the headquarters and then carry it down to Trilingua. Uh, we'll leave out the part at the, the headquarters because that was probably the part that was the wildest part of the chili cook-off. But when it got down to Tlingua, they would, everybody would cook their chili and they always had four uh, referees, four judges. And the reason for that was that they always deep-sixed one of them somewhere along the way, uh, which would make three judges, and they couldn't decide who's Chile won. If they had four, it wasn't going to work. So, the the fourth judge always either choked on the chili or somebody kidnapped him or uh, he had to be flown away because he had a heart attack. But at any rate, for every year, they would, would come up with a reason why they couldn't come up with a winner. But the crowds kept growing and growing and growing. Eventually, it ended up there was a split between people that really wanted a winner for chili and those that didn't. I'm trying to think. One was Frank Talbert. And, uh, Frank Talbert. Yeah, Wick Fowler. And the two of them, well, it wasn't Frank Talbert. Wick Fowler just kind of got angry that there wasn't a, a chilly winner, And we tried to explain to him that maybe it wasn't meant to be a, a winner at Terlingua anyway. But, uh... Those, those contests went on for a long, long time. And uh, started in 67 and, and just kept growing from there. And now people do know where Terlingua is. Back then they did not know. It was just a little old Quicksilver mine out in West Texas.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing all of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome and thank Mr. Michael Shelby.
1: Gosh, a huge thanks to to Mike Shelby and to David Fisher for a great interview. I think we all learned a lot, got some insights, not only on Mike and uh, the art of the car, but also on Carroll Shelby and what drove his innovation. A uh, couple of quick things. Reminder, don't forget to put your survey on the back table. We appreciate that. A quick thanks to, uh, here I go again, Richardson Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. <laughs> who brought their Dodge Charger over, the 2016, and thank you to Town East Ford and John Poe for bringing the 2016 Mustang. Thank you to all of the independent owners, such as Don Wallace here, and others who brought their cars to share and talk about eye candy. I think we got eye candy tonight. Anyway, and also to the Mopar Club, who wanted to participate, and a lot of their members just brought their cars on their own. I hope you got a chance to see them, too. Special thanks to Eric L. Wise of Weltstar Advisors for helping to coordinate this particular event and underwrite it. Also, I wanted to share that the next airtime is on April the 20th, and our featured guest artist is going to be Melanie Moore, who is the artistic director of Richardson's Contemporary Chorale. And for that event, our special film is going to be Sister Act. <laughs> so you'll discover the ins and outs of the choral world with maybe a twist. Anyway, thank you all so much. And for those of you who have not ever seen the movie Bullet, you are in for a rare treat with the best car chase scene ever. Thanks for being here and enjoy the movie.